Tonight, we're going to do a part two on traps. And my goal about traps is helping you to recognize them in your life. And I was thinking about, what about people like Kay, who his whole life's a trap? Like, he never, ever has that feeling of not being in it. You know, when I was working with prisoners, they felt the same way. That they lived in a trap. Like, that's the point, that they live in a trap. And... You know, when Jesus comes into their life, they start realizing sometimes they're more free inside the trap than people on the outside or the people what they call in the free who are in bondage on the inside. So freedom really takes place inside of you. But life can give you a lot of traps. And to just kind of give you a perspective, I feel myself every day, several times a day, headed towards a trap. So... If you're not experiencing the recognition of traps in your life a lot, then you're probably not going to be applying the promises of God. Does that make sense? So that's why I'm wanting you to think in terms of, okay, this is a trap coming near me, or I'm seeing a trap form so that you can do something about it. Remember when we talked about it, that if you really get to where you're praying and you really cry out to the Lord, you'll just start feeling a trap dissolve. And that's what you want to have happen. And so I thought we would talk tonight about some fun traps <laughs> because they end well. <laughs> if they end well, it makes it a great trap. It makes it good to be actually rescued out of a trap. And so our theme scripture we used last week, we did a lot of theology. This week's a lot of application. But I received this. A female humpback whale had become entangled in a spider web of crab traps and lines. Do you want to show us the picture, John? Without that being the purpose, the trap. She was weighted down by hundreds of pounds of traps that caused her body to struggle to stay afloat. She also had hundreds of yards of line rope wrapped around her body, her tail, her torso, a line tugging in her mouth. This is a story of giving gratitude. Make it big so you can see what... Yeah. A fisherman spotted her just off the coast of the Farallon Islands. Anybody have a guess where the Farallon Islands are? Uh, they're outside the Golden Gate. And radioed for help. Within a few hours, the rescue team arrived and determined that she was so badly off, the only way to save her was to dive in, untangle her. And believe me, that is a very dangerous proposition. One slap of the tail could kill a rescuer. And you know what happens when people are in pain and they're in a trap? They're just like a pet dog. They'll bite you in a trap. So their goal was to try to fix this well here. They worked for hours with curved knives and eventually freed her. When she was free, the divers say she swam in in what seemed like joyous circles. She then came back to each and every diver one at a time, nudged them, and pushed gently, thanking them. Some said it was the most incredibly beautiful experience of their lives. The guy who cut the rope out of her mouth says her eye was following him the whole time, and he will never be the same. The person wrote, may you be fortunate to be surrounded by people who will help you get untangled from things that are bonding you. And also it's about the joy of giving and receiving gratitude. So I thought that to me was a good picture of what it feels like to be in a trap. If you're ever entangled or if you're ever thinking, my lens, my life is just a complete mess without you meaning to. Or, so tonight the goal is recognizing traps around your life. Last week we talked more about where they're hidden the ideals behind them, but tonight I want you to remember, what is our theme verse? Psalm 91.3. And it's one of the most under-recognized verses of Psalm 91 of how important that it is to think in terms of traps. So, there was a guy in the Bible, and he seemed to be trapped quite a bit. Can you think who I'm talking about? Okay. Joseph got a little trapped. Yeah, I'm thinking of David. And I want you to think about this unusual concept. He got anointed, and he got trapped. Playing soothing music, and they start throwing spears at you. Running, and it doesn't get you away from your trap. When you are trapped in a cave, it is a time when you learn quicker. Now, I've wondered this idea about the anointing and traps. 
is it the minute you get anointed that the enemy starts sending those traps for you? And here he is. <laughs> he has an incredible experience. And literally, the anointing, in a way, helped put him in his trap. It drew it to him. You know, Spurgeon observed that David prayed when he was in the cave, but later when he was in the palace, he fell into temptation because he forgot to pray. He made the point, so David, as a young man waiting to be king, found out that class met when he was in the cave. That's where he had classroom instruction from the Lord. And they made this saying up about caves or traps in your life, that the caves have heard the best prayers you'll ever pray. And so the caves of your life sometimes have the most heartfelt, crying out prayers that you'll ever pray in your life. And so what's interesting about this is, you know, very few times on the Psalms does it actually tell you, oh, this is the Psalm that was written at this point in David's life. Did you know that the times he was in the cave, that that was when they noted it? So you're going to find that Psalm 142, he writes about that experience of being in the cave and being alone. And so it's unique to me that out of the ones that he literally tells, this is where I was when I wrote this particular psalm, you wouldn't realize that that's when he was feeling those trapped feelings. So Psalm 142 is one of them, and then also Psalm 57, and we have Psalm 40. Those are your three psalms on being trapped. In the cave, or in the trap, you have all kinds of different feelings of what's going on in your life. And I just wrote down a few of these notes here. But it's songs from the cave. As a young man, he's waiting to be king. You don't see anything but waiting on the Lord and seeing what the Lord's going to do with it. But in Psalm 57, it's kind of unusual because it's like he's waiting to give you a great outcome. Like, he knows he's trapped, but at the end of the psalm, he always kind of works himself out of his problem. You know, he starts out tied up in knots. He kind of gets gnarled. But King David works himself out of his problem. I don't know if you feel that way, but a lot of times you'll start out just not in a good mood. But as you start talking to the Lord, as you start working through things with the Lord, you can work yourself out of those frustrations. So Psalm 57 is that psalm or that song from the cave. And he's like thinking, man, I'm trying to save my life from this crazy guy. I mean, he's a madman. You know, God's been promising me some things, but it doesn't look like God's coming through. It doesn't look like God's delivering on his promises. So the last thing you would think about doing when you're in that kind of a problem is singing a praise song. That's not what you normally think of doing when you get trapped in something. So when you're in circumstances and you feel trapped and alone, cry out to him and listen to this, believing prayer. Believing prayer. You know, when you start that crying out that we've been talking on, you can feel that it starts snapping off of you. You know it felt good to Samson when his hair grew back out and he felt his strength return and anointing's coming back on his life. And that's what we're talking about here is that believing prayer. And so you must know personally how to call upon the Lord. You have to learn how to personally strengthen yourself in the Lord. In this time in your life, you find yourself where you get to the point where you're able to stand alone. And one thing that makes you feel trapped is what happens to you with your family as soon as you get, let's use the words, sold out. When I was doing a little bit of commentary study on that, I thought, oh, I think a few of us have gone through that. It says that actually the family starts feeling convicted, and they're pressuring you. They're putting pressure on you. They want you to tone it down. And I would say turn it up. And so this is where David was. He was stuck in one of those situations between all different types of people. And out of it comes a very unique heart in David where he starts praising. And that's where the traps in life, you think, well, I want out of this trap, but I'm not sure that life isn't a series of traps. I'm not sure that it doesn't just move from one thing to another. Because if you think about David, he in Psalm 23, it was probably one of his youngest psalms, or at least it's about that time in his life where he's talking about being a shepherd. Then he moves it over to, you know, the fact that he killed the lion and the bear. And then he killed the Philistine, Goliath. And as a result, he had national fame. He had the spotlight on him. And so 
with no cause of his own, he suddenly became put into a dilemma, a trap. And a lot of times older people will put you in a trap. You know, when Saul should have been mentoring this guy, he trapped him out of jealousy. And what's odd about him, he promoted him first. He put him in charge of his army. Saul told David, he said, you're in charge of my army. Can you imagine making David a general of the whole army of Israel? How old was the kid? But that's immediately what happened. But it's what inflamed the jealousy of Saul. That's what got him so mad about it. So immediately, David starts having to flee, hiding in caves, and he's trapped. And he has all kinds of different emotions start hitting him. And then if it's not bad enough, because you can't tell, he says he's alone in the cave. Was he really alone? Was David truly just alone in the cave or because he was so self-focused at that moment or self-absorbed, he was like, I'm alone. Or was he, let's say, emotionally alone? Because what he wrote is, no one cares for me. No one cares for my soul. And that's a terrible feeling when you feel trapped in a crowd that you can be in the middle of a whole lot of people and you feel completely alone. Or was he actually alone? Someone made this joke here. He said, I'm not sure what would be the worst problem, to be all alone in a cave, and when the lights go out, can you imagine? Drip, drip, the dank, the cold, the brown everywhere, then the blackout. (laughs) And so you're sleeping in this cold, you know, hard cave, And um, he says that feeling of aloneness in the middle of the night being there, or he said, you know, there's that feeling of being in the cave with um, 600, 400 uh, malcontents. You know what those are? Men that are not happy malcontents. To be locked in a cave with 400 people that are gropping. 400 Jewish men in a cave that are not in a good mood. Because it tells you they're discontents, they're discouraged. I mean, it tells you their emotional environment around them. So he said, and they all are looking at one person, you, to be the provision and to be their leadership. Uh, Maybe you'd say, I'd rather go back to being alone. You know, so you think, well, you know, being alone would be terrible, but it could be worse. You could have all 400 of your mighty men in there with you. You know, that feeling, you can just imagine that you have to provide that they expect, I don't know why, but they think that you're supposed to feed them and give them water. So can you imagine, what do you do if you're David and your job is you have to get food and water to these guys every day? No wonder they were out robbing Nabal. This is the problem that they were under, enough for 400 men every day. How about if they ate like what? They thought they should have snacks in between. I mean, double portions. Yeah. So you got the problem of feeding them, leading them, providing for them, and let alone you got to deal with all the men troubles. Everything that bothers them. Everything that's a... Yeah. Yeah, I guess if you had women. Yeah, if you, I was going to say if you had the women in there, that'd be like the Mexican prisons. I mean, I've never seen so many men locked up with the women. So in the cave or in the trap a lot of times, it's a miserable situation. So the loneliness, he might have felt very lonely with his 400 guys. He might have. But there's also other things in the cave with you. I want you to think about this. Fear, guilt, hurt, rejection. All right, so besides physical, you can't have... (laughs) So anyway, the emotional part was kind of done away with them. Okay, at some point you feel that David's feeling here that there's no escape from it. And so David says in verse 2, he says, I will pour out my complaint to the Lord. Now, he's not giving a polite prayer here, but he's overwhelmed and he's saying, I'm being... There's no escape for me. I've been brought very low. And I think it's very unusual to think, I've been anointed king, but I've been brought very low. I've been anointed leader, but I'm, I'm at my bottom. I'm at my lowest feeling. 
And then he said, because my enemies are too strong for me. I made a list of how many times that he felt that. He was like, wow, this being anointed king's not all it's cracked up to be. You know, I bet he wondered, what is going on in my life? He said in verse 7 that he felt like he was in prison. You know, prayer's not a time of just telling God all your problems, but being prepared to receive from him the things that you're asking of him. And so David would shift the idea. Like, he would shift the idea of what is going on, and then even uh, this week we were studying even higher ways to do it. So he was brought very low, and he did not feel like a king. You know, this might have been a good thing for Saul to have gone through. Because Saul was, you know, they said humble. You know, he was among the baggage. And they said, I would say he was kind of an insecure guy. And you put an insecure guy on a throne and you've got problems. And so this is what was the difference here. You have a very confident, confident guy and he's being brought very low. He didn't feel anything like what a king would feel. But one thing about David is... He realized that all he had, whether he was in the cave or this trap that is in his life or he's in a palace, he knew God was all he had. And you'll come to that place in life where you'll feel like, you know, God, God is all that I have. That's all that, all that matters to me. And so you'll hear all types of things in his music or in his song that, as he writes it. And I was going to tell you that if you'll write down those three, that when you're in a trap, you can find things in these. I didn't take them apart and really study them out. But these would be a good place to look and say, this is the words and this is the way that you work with feeling trapped. I want to touch on Psalm 40, though, because in Psalm 40, it's kind of funny because in the first half, he's in a pit or a trap. And God gets him out of it, and he sings God's praise. But it's evident in the second half that he gets in another pit. (laughs) And he's crying out to the Lord to deliver him from this one. So David was waiting on him. And so I wanted you to think about this. of Life might be moving from one trap to another. So you see that David is actually dealing with what I call a double trap here, a double pit that one moves to the other. So he has a victory. He has victory in his life young, but he has traps young in his life. And I wrote this note to myself, success comes with traps. With success comes traps. A lady ahead of the publishing company told me, she said, the most dangerous thing you can do with you working out your mom's ministry is not the fear of you failing. I'll never forget her telling me that. She said, it's not you failing that's dangerous. She said, it's you succeeding. And I didn't realize all the pressures, all the avalanches, all the overwhelmed. I didn't realize that, you know, like even with David where he became very popular, he was put in in charge of the army, and then the army's trying to chase him down and kill him. It's like people become jealous. And so people that want that affirmation or that significance or or something or they feel like they're insecure and they're not getting what they want they don't like your sudden rise to fame they somehow don't think you've um, are worthy of it you know they'll definitely point out why you haven't earned the right to be there so in dealing with this this is our scriptural context of what we're going to do of looking at some stories because sometimes in stories they tell us the most Steph may have to help me on this one of Dave Carnes. Have you ever heard of Dave Carnes, who was a Marine? And he's famous. He's actually been in a movie. Maybe. I think he did. Okay. He was with fellow U.S. Marine Jason Thomas. What's interesting about him, he's an accountant, and he was watching from... Lord, don't let me get in a trap. Yeah, it is, for sure. Deloitte. Touche. Touche, that's what I'd say. (laughs) In Wilton, Connecticut on September the 11th, 2001. And after witnessing the attacks on television, Carnes said to his co-workers, you guys may not realize this, but our country is at war. Now, what is your normal thinking when you see something on TV like that? The planes have struck. You're in Connecticut. Your, Your normal thinking would be, gosh, Connecticut's not too far from New York. 
I wonder if the whole place is exploding. I wonder what's happening. This guy Carnes, what he did was he went to church. He got up out of his office, he went to church, and he asked the pastor and the people in the congregation to say a prayer that God would lead him to survivors. Uh, they said that Carnes is a very devout man, and he often turned prayer when he faced very difficult situations or when he had to make a decision. So, having spent 23 years in the Marines, he knew what to do. He got a regulation haircut. He put on his camouflage utility uniform. He got his equipment. He got his repelling gear, and he drove from Connecticut straight into the mouth of the disaster. He went to the WTC, the World Trade Center, and at the site, he ran into another Marine, Jason Thomas, walked with him into the rubble. At that time, he only knew his fellow Marine as Sergeant Thomas, and his full identity was not discovered until years later. So, according to the Defense Department profile of Corns, as we were walking, we were yelling at the top of our guns, United States Marines, can anyone hear us? And as we approached the depression of the South Tower, I thought I heard something. Indeed, it was like some muffled call for help. I assured them that Thomas and I were both looking for them, so keep yelling so we can find you. Carnes instructed Thomas to position himself on some high rubble for visibility and guide my responding rescuers to the trapped man, to which he found operating engineer with a flashlight who climbed down and spoke with Will, one of the officers that was trapped. And after the operating engineer climbed through the rubble and summoned the FDNY, after Corns called his wife and sister with his cell phones with instructions to relay to the authorities his whereabouts, he and Thomas were able to find these two men named John and Will, a pair of police officers buried in the rubble. You want to read about those two guys? John McLaughlin graduated from the State University of New York of Oswego. Doctors kept him in an induced coma for six weeks. He underwent 27 surgeries and spent nearly three months in the hospital and rehab. Four months after their rescue, McLaughlin and Jamino, who both have since retired. Were honored in his service. Okay. Well, Jamino was born in November 26, 1967 in Columbia, but immigrated to New York City as a boy with his family. At the time of the attacks, he was a rookie cop assigned to the Port Authority bus terminal. And so on September the 11th, the Port Authority officers, John and Will, are patrolling the bus terminal in Midtown Manhattan when they see a plane fly dangerously low overhead. All of the police return to the station. They see that the North Tower of the World Trade Center has been hit by the plane. When they realize the extent of the danger and see one of the victims jump out of the towers to certain death, these men themselves go straight into the danger. The men proceed to go with their safety equipment from Building 5 that got it, entered the concourse between the two towers. The group consists of McLaughlin, Jamino, Dominic Pizzullo, and Antonio Rodriguez. Officer Christopher Amoroso appears to inform them of other events such as the American Airline attack and they said about the hit on the South Tower and also they thought there was an attack on Israel. But the group does not know if any of this is true. As the men prepare to enter the North Tower, the buildings begin to rumble. McLaughlin realizes that the South Tower is now collapsing onto them and their only chance of survival is to run into the service elevator shaft. Amoroso trips and does not have time to get up, and Rodriguez is unable to get to the shaft in time, resulting in both of them dying. Mm. McLaughlin, Jamino, Pazulo, managed, it must be Italians, managed to escape yeah. huge amounts of uh, dust and rubble flying down from the South Tower. However, as the rubble continues to crush the elevator shaft, the three are trapped. Mm. That'd be a terrible feeling. Mm. As the cascade of debris subsides, Pazulo, realizes he can free himself, and he manages to move closer to Jamino in order to shift the debris covering his legs, but cannot make it to McLaughlin, so he is trapped deeper in the rubble. Pizzullo tries but fails to shift the debris due to his weight and is instructed by McLaughlin not to leave. Shortly after, word is known that a fourth plane has been hijacked and crashed into Pennsylvania. As Pizzullo becomes optimistic that they will live, the rumbling begins inside of the North Tower, and it starts to close. Although Hamino and McLaughlin are not further harmed, Pizzullo is fatally injured when a concrete slab falls into the hole, crushing his torso. After he fires a gun through a gap in the rubble to try to alert rescuers to their position, he dies. 
Hamino and McLaughlin spend hours under the rubble and pain, but exchanging stories about their lives and family. McLaughlin is particularly anxious to get Hamino Jamino from uh, falling asleep, and Jamino also realizes that by straining to grab a metal bar above his body, he can make a noise that rescuers might hear. That's when the two Marines show up, Dave Carnes and John Thomas. They're searching for survivors, and that's when they hear these men calling for help. Jamino is rescued first, and then hours later, McLaughlin is lifted out of the debris, barely alive and in critical condition. The men are reunited with their distraught families at the hospital. Two years after the attacks, McLaughlin and Jamino uh, have a barbecue with their families. McLaughlin's wife, Donna, Jamino's wife, Allison, daughter, Brooke Bianca, and their newest addition, Olivia. The epilogue states that John and Will were two of the 20 people pulled out alive. He was pulled out of the rubble after 13 hours, the 18th of the 20 people pulled out alive. The other guy was rescued after 22 hours, the 19th of 20 people pulled out of the rubble alive. So if you think about it, Oliver Stone made a movie about this, and Carnes was so upset about the fact that he was disrespectful to George Bush, he wouldn't have anything to do with the movie. And so he didn't like Oliver Stone's representation. And they also took him, and so they made him to be a wildly crazy religious guy, you know, that was just all over the place with his Christianity. But Carnes actually is a really solid Marine. So if you think about trapped in the rubble, when you're trapped in life, you've got to depend on someone else getting you out. You wonder if, if they prayed. You know, you wonder if they turn their lives over to the Lord. You know, some people, they get into a trap and they just lay down to die. But anyway, I was just thinking that you've got to have something in you that does a crying out. You know, I think of Jonathan and Saul, but nobody came to rescue Jonathan. And you think of Martin Luther, and when he, they were on their way to kill Martin Luther. I mean, he would have been a martyr like everyone else. His best friend kidnapped him and saved his life. And he made the kidnap look like it was done by an enemy. And that's why it saved his life. They thought someone had kidnapped him and killed him. And I thought this is a precarious situation when you find that you're in a trap situation and you don't have any power on your own to get out. And that's what you found these two guys, that they had actually been helping people out of traps when they themselves got trapped. And that's what I think happens is that we help other people to get out of traps in life. And sometimes we manage to get ourselves trapped. So you may have a ministry of untrapping people. Carnes, he knows his purpose. He has a prayer covering. And he finds and he rescues people. He wasn't just a dreamer. He really was able to make it happen. So, you know, I was thinking about deliverance. Deliverance is a form of getting people untrapped. That today we had a, a long call from Adrian talking about his people being entrapped. He goes, y'all definitely did a good job so that they, no. He said it in Adrian, nice words. But he said, you got them unstuck. And when you see a person in a mess, like if you see somebody whose life's just stuck, with the Lord, you do something to try to unstick them. Like this guy doesn't look very successful in life when he's crying out and he's screaming He's running around at tombs. He's in the graveyard. He didn't wear clothing. Everybody tried to avoid him. They tried to chain him up. You're looking at that person's life and saying, is there anything different? Like, it's a waste of a human life to have someone totally trapped. You know, you see people today, they're trapped in mental institutions. They're trapped on medication. You know, they monitor how much medication's in a city by the sewage, and they're checking what we're on. That's how come they know if a certain city has a lot of meth. They know what's in a city. There's different ways of having your life where you're caught. You can be in a, in a situation where you have something that literally you can't get the victory over, some, some sin, and it just, it's what your predominant, it's like carrying an unseen chain around all the time. Or sometimes you have just an unseen something wrong inside of you. Either if you're predominantly tortured or tormented by fear, 
or guilt or insecurity. All these things just leave you in a trap. This guy was an extreme case, and you can tell when people have demonic problems because of the fact that they're restless. That people that have a lot of demons in them, that inside of these people, you would never believe that inside of a guy that 2,000 demons would leave and make the pigs jump into the water, that a man who wanted to worship Jesus fell down at his feet and worshiped. And I was wondering, have you ever gotten in the prone position of just getting on your hands and knees and bowing to the Lord? I dare say there's people in church that have never really like worshipped like that, like got down on their hands and knees and really just worshipped the Lord and thanked Him. But yet a man who was considered completely crazy had a worshiper living inside of him. So a lot of times before I start a deliverance, I'm thinking in terms of there's a worshiper trapped inside of this person's body. And I wonder if I could untrap them. Giving it all to the Lord, that surrender, that selling out, it untraps people. And this deliverance, it's like it sets you up to completely be free and to get untrapped. Now, I was going to say that the worst thing that I could think of is that your whole life you spend in a trap. That you let the enemy kill, steal, and destroy. And I want you to think right now, what is that trap that I'm in? I'm not talking about the traps that you'll face in the future, the ones that's baited for you. I'm saying already you could already have a trap around you. You could already have something that holds you in place. You know, the scripture says, the ruler of this world has come and he has nothing in me. And if you've got anything that every time it happens to you, it gets the same result. It's a trap. And so you're constantly having to work to get out of that. Like, so that the enemy doesn't gain advantage of you. Where if he wants to knock you off where you can't think for three days, he makes this happen to you. Remember we talked about it. Gets your goat, yanks your chain, rattles your cage. Like, the enemy has one thing he can do to your life, and consistently he can get the same exact reaction out of you. That's where we get into a trap. Like, if he wants to give you a gut punch or hurt you, and it knocks you off of ministry for a few days, or it does something to your mind, or it breaks you, that this literally is a trap because you're consistently reacting to it the same. So the enemy has figured out is the scheme of the enemy that he knows every single time, I want to do this to you. So these are the type of traps that we have to look at. Now, I don't know if you've heard about this guy, but I have never forgot his story. It will make you look at people that are crippled a totally different way. This kid right here was for 12 years trapped inside of his body. And this is the part that drives you crazy. He said it mentally broken. But because they didn't think he was there, he was a vegetable, they put him in front of a TV and made him watch Barney over and over and over. That's all they left playing. They looped it. And he couldn't lift a hand. He couldn't make a face gesture. He couldn't say anything. He wanted to scream, get me out of being in front of this TV. Can you imagine to be trapped in your body and you can't even tell anyone? This is mental torture to be in front of a TV set watching this over and over and over. And so this was the story that I was leading up to, and there's several unique pictures of him. His name is Martin Pistorius, and, it's, and originally he was from South Africa. And this is him in the wheelchair in 1992. More pictures. Yeah. I want to say something that's very unusual about this guy. He wasn't always like this. So, anyway, come read this, and if you can read this sentence, you get the, uh, the prize tonight. Okay. According to David Foster Wallace, refers to a particular kind of irony where the very macabre and the very mundane combine in such a way as to reveal the former's perpetual containment within the latter. Isn't that deep? We'll leave it at that. <laughs> Sam, did you get that? 
In other words, you can have the most twisted things that happen to you combined with the mundane, and it can break you mentally. That's my Texas version of this. Like he was put with the mundane, and it became the most sad, tragic story that you can imagine. And I'd read this a while back, but it says perhaps no other word better describes the one-time fate of Martin Pistorius, a South African man who spent more than a decade, 10 years trapped in his body, involuntarily watching Barney reruns every day. I cannot even express to you how much I hate Barney. I can't the rest of the world thought Pistorius was a vegetable. I'm going to call him Martin, according to NPR. Doctors told his family as much after he had fallen into a mysterious coma as a healthy 12-year-old boy. They have not solved why he was going along at 12, boom, went into a coma. Yeah. Before emerging several years later, becoming completely paralyzed. So he went from a coma to paralyzed, unable to communicate with the outside world. This nightmare which can be caused by a stroke or an overdose or medication, is known as total locked-in syndrome. And there is no cure for it. Like, never. In a first-person account, Martin described the period after he slipped into the coma. I was treated for tuberculosis, meningitis, but no conclusive diagnosis was made. Medication after medication was tried to no effect. I traveled beyond what medicine understood. I was lost in the land where dragons lie, and no one could rescue me. So as you think about it, but there's something very unusual. Around the age of 14 or 15, he started pulling out a little bit. And he had a dreary fog in his mind when he started coming out, and he gradually rebooted himself. Now, what do you think in terms of our 10-day law here? right to life. I want you to think in terms of this. Ten days, even if you're recovering, we're going to pull it. This is ten years. I had a sense that something was wrong. I suppose you can almost describe it like you're trying to wake up from a dream, but you can't make yourself wake up. At some point between the ages of 16 and 19, he fully regained consciousness, only to be confronted by the jarring reality of his situation. He was trapped marooned on a deserted island within himself. His only companion was his despondent thoughts, which had begun to eat away at whatever hope he had left. So the sad part, as he started coming back and the fog started lifting, that's when he had a fully alert mind inside of that body. So his thoughts were crazy. Pistorius told himself no one would ever love him, and that for as long as he remained alive, he was doomed. It was like a cold, sinister, frustrating, frightening feeling, which seemed to throttle every cell in your body, he told about the feeling being trapped. It was like you're a ghost witnessing life unfold in front of you, but nobody knows you're in the room. But Pistorius was there, and so much so, he remembered with clarity the death of Princess Diana, the inauguration of Nelson Mandela, the September the 11th terror attacks. He watched his relatives go about their lives and listened to the things they said, though they had no idea he was hearing them. That's <laughs> Just let yourself think what... <laughs> uh -huh. Some people might not have been exactly excited when this miracle took place. <laughs> But nobody thought I was even aware of them, let alone the fact that I only knew about them, but was shocked and excited or saddened like everyone else. He said I had. Martin was moved to caregivers' centers for severely disabled children. The stress and heartache shook his parents' marriage and their family to a core. But his dad wouldn't let go. His dad's faith in me was stretched almost to the breaking point. I don't think he ever disappeared completely. Each day, Dad, a mechanical engineer, washed and fed me, dressed me, and lifted me up. A bear of a man with a huge beard like Father Christmas, his hands were always gentle. I would try to get him to understand that I had returned. He said, I, I tried so hard to just make my arm to work. Dad, I'm here. Can't you see? But he didn't notice. 
He continued to undress me, and my gaze slid to my arm. It was not moving. It was only an outward manifestation with only a muscular twitch that was close to my elbow. The movement was so tiny they had never noticed it. Everything in him willed that his dad knew, I'm here. Rage filled me. I felt sure I was going to burst. I gasped for breath. Are you okay, boy? Dad asked as he heard my ragged breathing and looked up. It was the rage coming out of him. I could only stare, praying my silent desperation would somehow communicate itself. Let's get you into bed, shall we? When his parents would travel, they would take Martin to a care facility where he could stay overnight. Now, this is what happens with trapped people. You either uh, care for them or you don't care for them. And you're a predator with them. When his parents would travel, one of the female employees sexually molested Martin on a regular basis. It doesn't get any more despicable than preying on someone who's helpless. Don't you know someone was afraid? When? He also had caregivers that were downright cruel to him. Bad nurse, unseasoned food, coffee that was too hot. They didn't care. He wasn't a person. I was thinking that's what Mark 10's like. They're trapped. Just a warning for those who uh, work with people. <laughs> he was abused in the daycare centers. Physical abuse, emotional abuse, all types, sickening. And when his new book came out, he lays it all out. But his recovery began with Barney, the big purple dinosaur he was forced to watch on the loop at the special care center where he spent his days. Pistorius decided he had had enough and dedicated his thoughts to something that offered some realm of control over his reality, such as telling time by tracking sunlight in the room. So his biggest thing was trying to blank the Barney out so that he could think other thoughts. That's what he said was the worst, is he would have rather been there without having to try to blank out the loop-de-loop. He said, I can still to this day tell the time it is by looking at shadows. But in the midst of this, there was a good nurse that came. Within 18 months after he had become a, a vegetable, unable to speak or move, and then after a couple of years went by and he began to awake, no one noticed for 10 long years until a caregiver named Berna became convinced that Martin was more aware than anyone had realized. She's the real heroine of this story. She was the catalyst who changed everything. Had it not been for her, I would probably either be dead or forgotten or just stuck in a care home somewhere. She convinced his parents to take him to the Center for Augmentative and Alternative Communication, and that's when his life began. Finally, he had a way out of the silent world, and things began happening. He was a very, uh, when he comes out, he's a very handsome man. His picture is in Israel, and as they begin to work on his ability to start having speech, as his mind improved, he learned to reframe and interpret his ugliest thoughts. His health improved, and by the age of 26, he was able to use a computer to communicate, and he shocked his whole family. When he gets the tools to communicate, he forges his head, his mother Joan told the reporter. It wasn't long until he had gotten a job, enrolled in college to study computer science, and started a web company, and more recently wrote a book, Ghost Boy, that was published in 2011. The Sunday Times calls it a deeply affecting and at times shocking book. The diving bell and the butterfly, but with a happy ending. Indeed, Pistorius fell in love, and he got married. Speaking through a device that allows him to talk with the help of a computer keyboard, he can be seen on videos discussing the book and his wife in the same sitting. He is now living happily in the UK with his wife Joanna, leading a life that is perfectly regular, which is exactly how he prefers it. I'm happy who I am. He has a business, joy, peace, love, and the good stuff of life. He has recovered the use of his hands and his feet, and his facial muscles work. Yes, life has its challenges, but then again, whose doesn't? So, in this story of traps, we could go on to talk about the one in Mom's book of the submarine stuck on the bottom of the sea. Things in life where you just feel caught. If you're going to go into a little closet of claustrophobia, I would say join the submarine <laughs> division of the United States military.
This is one of those stories. And in the old days, I hope they've improved this, but this is a World War II story from uh, the British newspapers. And the submarine sunk and it wouldn't come up. And it lay helpless on the ocean floor for two days and they couldn't get the mechanisms to work. And so after two days, they lost all hope and they decided that raising her was gonna completely not even be possible now, so they abandoned all hope. Now, this story is in the Psalm 91 book of the military that, that mom wrote. It's a very interesting story of being trapped. Can you imagine being in that small compartment and they come along and tell you you're not going up? And this is what happened to these men. All hope is lost. And so anyway, after giving the orders from the crew, a commanding officer began singing a hymn. I haven't heard of this hymn. Maybe it's British, but it says, Abide with me. It says, Abide with me, for quickly falls the eventide. The darkness deepens. Lord, with me abide. When other helpers fail and comforters flee, help of the helpless, oh, abide with me. You know, fast falls the moment when all hope is lost. Lord, Everybody that could help me or comfort me has left me. But you're the help of the helpless. So the officer, after he did this, he explained to the men, you don't have long to live. There was no hope of outside aid because all the surface searchers didn't know the vessel's position, so they had no way of helping to pull them up. So guess what they do? They give them sedative pills. We're at least going to make you comfortable as you die. Well, the first guy they gave the sedative pill to us, they started giving him out. The guy was not used to him, and he fainted just right on the spot when he got the sedative pills to calm his nerves, to quiet his nerves. He was affected more quickly than all the other ones. And when he fell, when he fainted, he fell on a piece of equipment. And when he fell on the piece of equipment, it set it in motion, and the submarine's jam surfacing mechanism creaked to life. Now, was that not an angel helping that guy fall, bam, right in the right spot? He was. I mean, the power of the Lord just hit him, and he fell on that jammed equipment. That was in their British newspapers. Don't you know that every single man that came home, it was a miracle? Think of the family lines that continued on because of this story. This was a really fun one because these are the types of traps with good, happy endings. We all like happy endings to traps. You know, as I go through them, I want you to look at these different categories. The humpback whale caught in the trap. It kind of gives you mentally a picture of yourself when, you're, when you feel trapped. These are mental traps. These are things that happen to your mind. You're, this is what I, I, I feel like during this time. Sometimes my traps have traps. And the important part of this story is that the whale showed gratitude. If a whale can show gratitude to the ones that free him from his trap, then surely we must remember to thank God when he delivers us from the traps. The second story of, or the next story of Colonel Ammerman and how he took his job as a chaplain so seriously that he literally didn't try to protect his own life, but he loved his life even to death. So when he was in the trap of, of death, he keeps on doing what he was made to do. The enemy tries to trap you to make you leave your assignment or be left. Like he puts an impossible uh, thing in front of you, like where either way you go, it won't work. But Amberman knew that he would answer to God and give an account for what he was called to do. You know, he had a double trap on him, but he had courage, and he was able to do both. Neither way trapped him, but Emmerman didn't die trying to help people, nor did he try to help himself and leave people dying as a result. So he had a decision he had to make. It looked like it was impossible. Either he was going to try to help people and was going to die trying, or it looked like he was going to try to save his own life and die as a result. It was a double trap, but God delivered him from the snare of the trapper when we're, we're needing to be delivered from both traps. You know, of course, the submarine trap. 
there's no way to even ex explain this, that they cried out to God, and they sang a, 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 a hymn together. And, you know, you hear people sometimes say, well, let's the whole world pray to God, but you're not even sure which God they're meaning they're praying to. But they all prayed together in agreement to the one true God. And then the unbelievable happened. And literally, God got them out of the trap. There, there was no one that came to rescue them. And then the unimaginable happened. And God saved the entire group of men. Do not forget that corporate prayer and agreement can get you out of the trap on the bottom of the sea. And, and the lesson from the guy trapped in his own body. This is a sneaky trap. He admits himself he never saw it coming. He was at a young age, and suddenly the man became, the boy became trapped in his own body. It, it was a trap of reality, of harsh reality. He, he had this thing where he, not only was he trapped in his own body, he was trapped with his desires. He desired to be loved. His dad, he said, never gave up on him. No matter the difficulty, his dad kept taking care of him. But he had a desire to be married, to find love. And it's the kind of traps that they're inward traps. The other ones were that where people were trapped outwardly, but this man is trapped within himself. And not only is he trapped within himself, he's even his desires are trapped within him. And when he came out of that trap, he literally came back and God gave him the desires of his heart. The last one was the guy at 9-11 where he was anointed to help people get out of traps. How many of you have helped people be delivered from traps? You know, you can have an anointing upon your life where you're just able to get people free that you don't even know. And you just have something come over, over you where you must go help them. And it's a desire, and you don't even know who the people are, how they're trapped, or uh, anything about them. And God yet will give you the anointing to, this one's completely different. This is not that you're trapped, but that you go in and help others get free from traps. And you do it all in the name of the Lord. Well, as we close, I'm going to say tonight that we have looked at some fun ways that literally you can find, no matter the worst trap you're in, that God is faithful to the promise that he will deliver us from the snare of the trap.